0: Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there.
1: For the month of June, we're asking listeners to
0: donate to the station to help us keep going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of Community to Survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening.
2: afternoon listeners this is the dogs program Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday 12 noon without fail to defend and promote public education and doesn't it need defending and promoting and doesn't 3CR need defending and promoting because they let us on to give you the news of the week about education unfiltered it is radio throng time again I'm afraid and we need you to ring up 3CR on nine four one nine eight three double seven and pledge your donation for the dogs so that we can give you the credit when we go to air next week. But we need you to do it now if you possibly can. We also need to raise almost $5,000 if you don't mind, which is a lot of money. So we do need you to be generous even though the cost of living is going up, so is the cost of running running 3CR and the dog sport. But we've got a very interesting program for you this afternoon. Our press release, 984, is some material that has come through from the Rationalist Society, which we think that you would be very interested in, and we're also dealing with the fact that Mr Andrews has actually called the private schools businesses and is taking away one of their many, many, many exemptions from tax. And he's brought the wrath of the Catholic Church and various other people down on him. Right. But the really interesting thing for the dogs is how many people have rung in thinking that it's a great idea that the private schools pay tax like every other business in the nation. We've also got uh, Sol, who's going to tell us about the $10 million for consultants in education up in New South Wales. And we've got some other very interesting material. A lot of it is from New South Wales because that's where the action has been in the last few weeks. But we've also got, of course, our great state school. And uh, we hope that you'll stay with us for that. But first, let's go to Oliver and press release 984 which you can find on our website at www.adogs.info. Over to you, Oliver.
3: Thank you, Jean. This is the DOGS Press Release 984 Labor Policy Platform Drops Support for Universal Free Secular Schooling. Cy Gladden from the Rationalist Society discovered on the 2nd of June 2023 that the Federal Labor Party has removed the word secular from the section about education in its new draft national policy platform. The draft national platform, released this week to party members as part of a consultation process, describes public schools as among our nation's most important institutions, and says they need to be fully and fairly funded to deliver excellent education that meets the needs of every child. However, the new draft has removed the reference to universal free and secular public education a significant change, abandoning Labor's long-held express commitment to secular public education in Australia. Page 32 of the previous national platform, released in 2021, stated that the party believe every Australian child in every community should have access to high-quality, universal, free, secular government schooling. The 111-page draft policy document now does not include any mention of the word secular. Labor members have until 23rd of June to provide feedback on the draft national platform with further revisions expected before it is presented to the national conference in August. Rationalist Society of Australia President Meredith Meredith Doig said grassroots Labor members would be alarmed by the party's walking away from secular public education. I think Labor members across Australia would overwhelmingly want the Labor Party to stand up and defend secular public education. And we know many MPs in the party also value secularism and secular public education in particular. So it's concerning that the party looks set to ditch its support for universal, free, secular government schooling, Dr. Doik said. The public school system should be secular, yet it has been under sustained attack in recent decades with the federal government funding religious agents under the guise of chaplaincy program to go into public schools, and with states such as Queensland and New South Wales continuing to segregate children along religious lines during class time to allow missionaries to deliver scripture lessons. We urge Labour MPs and party members to stand up for secular public education and make sure secularism is returned to the party's national platform. In 2021, then opposition leader Anthony Albanese said it was important for Australia to have a separation between church and state. Dogs suggest that if Anthony Albanese genuinely believes this, he should return to the Labour platform of 1970 before the Labour Party under Whitlam gave state aid to private religious schools. Dogs also note that the word secular has a long history. It assumes that there is a distinction between the secular or things of this world, and the spiritual, or things of the spiritual realm. It does not mean anti-religious, but it assumes a distinction between the secular and the spiritual. In the 19th century, the Catholic Church insisted that the spiritual should permeate education. Those promoting public education considered that education belonged in the realm of the secular, and that the spiritual was a matter for the private conscience. In the 21st century, however, those promoting religious schools appear to be more interested in running secular businesses than promoting spiritual purity. Perhaps it has always been so. Back to you, Jen.
2: Yes, thank you very much. Um, there is certainly these days the question as to what, um, what religious means. Uh, I don't think that many people ever understood that for 26 days in the High Court of Australia in 1979, The religious schools uh, tried to prove that they were no more religious than any state school. Uh, And yet for 100 years they had been asking us to accept them as primarily uh, founded for religious purposes. Uh, But I think that this uh, whole idea of um, religion and secular, we should get back to what the terms really mean. Next week, we'll have a very interesting um, discussion for you on whether or not um, secular would be very good. The secular education system is, in fact, very good for Christianity and for religion as a whole. But um, the dogs, as you know, as we tell you every week, believe in the separation of church and state, the separation of religion from the state. And therefore, we think that education should be secular, and we're very concerned that the Labor Party uh, is considering dropping the idea. So we don't belong to the Labor Party, but if there's any Labor Party members listening, perhaps you should get on to your bosses and tell them you want that word secular, put right back in. But uh, we'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll come back to talk about the issue of the week, which is Mr Andrews actually asking some wealthy private schools to pay payroll tax. But please think about getting to the phone and ringing up and pledging a donation to the dogs.
1: 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June.
2: We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Yes, well, before the break, we mentioned the issue of the week, which is the payroll tax for private schools. And sorrel has got a very interesting article about private schools crying poor. Well, we all know that that's BS. Over to you, Sorrel.
4: Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Dr Emma Rowe, who has written for the Sydney Morning Herald. And it is entitled, private schools are crying poor, but trust me, they can afford a new tax. We like to think we are very egalitarian in Australia, but this is not reflected in our education system. I would sum up our education using three P's, private, pricey and disparity. Unlike other countries, our private schools receive generous government funding, but also permitted to charge fees. And compared to other countries, our schools tend to be far more separated along the lines of family wealth, parent education, and parent income. Why we accept this in Australia, a country that is supposedly committed to egalitarianism and social mobility, is curious. We culturally consent to an incredibly large private school sector that charges exorbitant fees and the things these schools get away with. Many hold multi-million dollar investment portfolios, all while accepting very generous government funding. They report annual surpluses, profits in the millions. Many raise their tuition fees faster than you can blink. During the pandemic, many of these elite private schools applied for JobKeeper and accepted millions of dollars in handouts. They also enjoy lucrative tax exemptions due to their status as not-for-profit and charity. And when the Victorian government last week proposed removing payroll tax exemptions for private schools, there was an uproar by the private school lobby. This charitable status that private schools enjoy is the result of a historical hangover. If we rewind 60 years when the government funding for private schools was first introduced, private schools were indeed charitable. They were serving disadvantaged communities. They were struggling for basic resources such as mass blocks or toilets. But these days, private schools cater to our most advantaged student cohort, in fact, when researchers drill down into the demographics, they see that enrollment is overwhelmingly patterned by a students' background. Schools that charge higher fees tend to enroll students from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. The higher the fees equate to the higher level of family income, family wealth and education levels. This is what the research shows us time and time again. Whenever I talk about these things, someone will typically say to me, well, that can't be true because I know my poor mate's friend's neighbor's sister attends an expensive school or something along these lines. This all may be well and true, but they are the exception to the rule. Why does this matter, you might wonder? It matters because enrolment is predicated on family levels of wealth. We are entrenching social immobility within our education system. There is a strong relationship between your family background and whether your school can afford a heated pool. It matters because government funding for private schools has absolutely accelerated in the past 20 years, whereas it has declined for public schools. It matters because our public schools serve the overwhelming majority of students experiencing forms of social disadvantage. And yet it is these schools struggling for basic resources. Researchers continue to show that private schools are overfunded, that many of our elite private schools have pools with heated floors or a personal pool for the headmaster or even that the majority of our AFL players are recruited only from the top elite private schools is culturally accepted. We accept significant differences between our private and public schools. We accept different standards as based on family wealth. We then accept declining social mobility. We know that education has strong ties to social mobility and life opportunity. This is perhaps due to our politics for the past 20 years. For the past 20 years, particularly during the Howard years, but also during the Rudd and Gillard, private schools have been protected. There has not been one single measure for the last 20 years that has encroached on the revenue of private schools, with the exception of the more recent change to how we calculate the SES score. But there have been plenty of measures that have helped private schools increase their revenue. There have been prime ministers who have engaged in plenty of anti-public school rhetoric. Let's face it, the government has been helping along private schools for the last 20 years and it is not a surprise that parents have chosen them. Of course it has come with a significant sting for parents. They are faced with a huge bill that is ever-increasing. Even if you start saving for tuition fees at the same time your child is born, the amount is statistically likely to have doubled by the time your child gets there. So when high-fee private schools in Victoria were told last week that they would lose their tax exemption in 2024, yet another privilege they have enjoyed due to their charitable status, I am not surprised there was outrage. I would expect the private school lobby to fight this like it's the greatest war they have ever faced, because it is. They will have to pay a tax that their public counterparts already pay, a payment that for some of these schools is only a very small proportion of their reported annual surplus. Many of these schools that will lose their tax exemption report surpluses that are in the millions. For example, Scotch College reported a $9 million surplus in 2021. That's during the pandemic. Cary Baptist reported a $10 million surplus. These are schools that can afford to absorb this into their budget. When they say they will be forced to increase their fees or they will be forced to cut staff, this is simply not true. The majority can afford to wear it, let me assure you. Private schools are government-funded, just like public schools. In other countries, they would be considered public because they accept public funding. As they've chosen to accept government funding, it is fair to expect some kind of return to the public purse. It is fair for private schools to pay their fair share of taxation. We should also expect outrage from the private school lobby. But perhaps this might spark outrage amongst the public too, regardless of where you send your child, simply on the basis that a fair and equitable education system benefits us all. Yes, it does. Fantastic point made there. Thank you, Dr. Emma Rowe. And back to you, Jean.
2: Yes, well, that was a very interesting article, wasn't it? But here we have Dale, who's going to tell us how Mr. Andrews reacted to the pressure of the private school interest, the very powerful private school interest, particularly his mates from the Roman Catholic Church. Over to you, Dale.
0: Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here by Benito Colovos uh, titled Victoria Waters Down Plan to Impose Payroll Tax on High Fee Private Schools Amid Anger Over the Budget Measure. So the Premier's told the Budget Estimates hearing that the revenue derived from this measure will almost certainly be less than what has been forecast. The Victorian Government has watered down its plan to strip 110 private schools of their long-standing payroll tax exemption, with Daniel Andrews conceding the measure will not raise as much money as forecast in last week's state budget as a result. According to the budget, about 110 high-fee schools, or around the top 15% by fee level, were to lose their payroll tax exemptions from mid-2024, raising more than $420 million over three years. That estimate was based on an annual fee threshold of about $7,500 per student. But amid strong resistance from independent and Catholic schools about the changes, the Premier on Friday told a budget estimates hearing the number of schools to be affected will be lower than forecast. Perhaps there should have been some better footnotes around this item in the budget. I'll fully concede that point, Andrews told the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee. He said the $7,500 fee figure was set in 2020 and was not necessarily reflective of fees and costs and pressures in the school fee environment now. He said the Education Minister, Natalie Hutchins, was currently consulting with the sector and would determine a new threshold at which private schools will be charged payroll tax. I'm not in a position to confirm what it will finish up at, but it will go up, Andrew said, of the threshold. There'll be less than 110 schools, and the overall revenue that's derived from this measure will almost certainly be less than what's been forecast. He said the existing definition of a high fee school was used to ensure the budget papers were not blank. Had there not been a threshold, then the budget papers would have said to be confirmed, to be confirmed, to be confirmed across three years. Andrews said. He speaks regularly to Catholic and independent schools and not once had they complained about the definition of low-fee and high-fee schools, which had been in place for some time. They fully expect that we're not sending the Smile Squad dental van around to Xavier College, but we do do want to send it to a low-fee parish primary school and suburban regional secondary schools that charge a more modest amount of money, he said. On Wednesday, the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria wrote to Labour MPs, urging them not to proceed with the plans. It said up to 20 of its schools, half of which charge less than $10,000 a year, could lose up to $1 million a year from their operating budgets, forcing them to increase student fees. The opposition's education spokesperson, Matt Bach, said Andrew's comments were an admission from the Premier of the pain that Labor's school tax is set to cause so many Victorians. I wouldn't trust the Premier as far as I could throw him. The legislation is clear. The school's t- school's tax can be applied to any non-government school regardless of fees, Bach said. The Secretary Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, Jeremy Moore, said also told the hearing that Victoria was being highly vigilant after PwC used confidential federal government information for financial gain. mull told Greens MP Ellen Sandal that the individuals at the consultancy firm were involved in the scandal and had very small exposure to Victorian government accounts identified by an audit to be seven hours of work over the last 15 years. The Secretary of the Department of Treasury and Finance, David Martin, had earlier on Friday confirmed some private schools with payrolls of more than $10 million will also be liable to pay the. COVID debt repayment and mental health levies. From July this year, businesses that pay more than $10 million in wages nationally, approximately 5% of the state's employers, will pay a COVID debt levy via a payroll tax surcharge of 0.5% for their Victorian employees. This is in addition to the mental health levy announced in the 2021 budget. Under questioning by Liberal MP Bev MacArthur, Martin confirmed about 11,000 businesses will be affected by the new tax, but denied it would result in job losses.
2: Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a break from uh, the ALP, DLP, called what you will. Bits of sellouts, aren't they? But the, uh, the people who are commenting on these articles are holding firm. Private schools are businesses, not charities. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you,
1: the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
2: Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
3: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419 8377
2: or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. listening to the dogs program I hope and we also hope that you've run nine four one nine eight three double seven 8377 and pledged your donation for the dogs program but we're going now to Kim because the other issue of the week has been the PwC scandal and consultants and we found out last week that these PwC people have been uh, getting their cotton picking fingers into the education departments but um Let's find out about the $10 million for consultants up there in New South Wales. Over to you, Kim.
1: Thanks, Jean. Uh, Yes, so this is titled 10 Million for Consultants, a Further Step from Reality from the blog Pearls and Irritations by John Frew. Last year, the New South Wales Education Department paid almost $10 to Deloitte consultants for expert advice, not to mention how much of taxpayers' revenue went into the pockets of the disgraced PwC for similar nonsense. This reliance on outside know-how is a logical step up from the failed policy of governments employing experts in leadership to head up their departments. What return did we get? After all this time, New South Wales school system is on life support, evidenced by the abject failure of this expert's approach. The new Labor government, particularly the Minister for Education, is searching the globe for a leader who can rehabilitate a failed system. I argue that this practice of importing expert leaders to run the show will result in more of the same and will do nothing to repair an already damaged sector. These modern leaders are schooled in Harvard's Business School's adaptation of the scientific paradigm of the 60s that explained the whole by examining the parts, reductionism. In fields like physics and engineering, this was a successful technique. Reduce the structure down to its independent parts and when reassembled, it will return to its initial state. Harvard now offers an almost equally defied course on leadership underpinned by the same attitude. When this reductionist approach is applied to bureaucracy, and I use education as my example, it is effective in understanding the different internal departments, the silos that populate all large organisations. But in fields like biology and social sciences, the final expression of the whole is not the sum of the properties of the parts. The combination of parts blends to allow separate properties to emerge. The property of emergence was first hinted at by John Stuart Mills in the mid-19th century in his book Systems of Logic, where he discussed how the properties of chemical compounds did not relate to the properties of their constituent elements. The archetypal example that illustrates this difference is water. We know that water consists of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. We really understand the properties of both elements. Knowing this does not explain the wetness of water, neither oxygen nor hydrogen have anything in their properties that would predict this. Science has turned to the study of emergence to better understand that the properties of the parts need not forecast the properties of the whole. Currently studies in leadership focus on the analysis of parts and implements improvements at this level in the belief that the end product will reflect each improvement. This is clearly not the case. Of course, the complexity of modern bureaucracies grew over time. Early education consisted of a teacher in a hall who taught the local kids. As the population grew in size, so did the school's need of support from outside. The result was a public service which understood their role in supporting the school. This bottom-up design ensured that every developing service focused on the school's needs. This, the case I make against the top-down approach provided by consultants and specialist leaders is difficult to prosecute. The actual courses the department runs all claim to be grounded in the latest research and they can point to improvements in whatever they are tasked to do. A drive for improvement is appropriate and within each silo there is legitimate success, but I will argue that this achievement within the silo has a detrimental effect on schools and any research of the current effectiveness of individual schools will confirm this. The actuality in the system is that instead of the silos serving the schools, the schools serve the goal of the silos, thus taking their focus off the students needs. Leadership is important, but it's the type of leadership that counts. If you research the qualities of modern leaders, you will get a trove of motherhood statements, vision, integrity, emotional intelligence, collaboration, the list goes on. What I have yet to discover in any course description is experience in the field that is to be led. In the past, all forms of bureaucracy found their leaders from the employees that worked for their discipline. Those who excelled were promoted to a position where they took their acquired skills from the ground level and added them at the next level. The result was those who had the aptitude and the experience became the leader. They emerged from the workforce knowing not only the function of each division but also how these divisions work in combination. They were there to serve, in our case, the individual schools. I have no illusion about the powerful influence of the leadership movement and their reliance on consultancies. Regrettably, it is this continuous manifestation of top-down solutions devised by those who have no understanding of the power of emergence. I think, like science, we really do need to look at the evidence of the whole system and the effectiveness of those who understand that they are to lead. It's time to look within the service for those leaders who will emerge." Yes, a very
2: interesting article. And, of course, what they might like to do is to actually look at the history that they're repeating so badly. (laughs) My view is that they were way back into the 1850s and 60s and they haven't yet learnt that you have to centralise the system to protect teachers and to give support to the school. That is why it was uh, centralised in the first place and it centralised first in New South Wales. So all of this Harvard nonsense, you would have thought that they would have learned long ago. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and come back to see more interesting material.
1: Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon fundraiser, June 2023.
3: To donate, call the station, 0394198377 or donate online 3CR.org.au. 3CR Radiothon
2: 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we hope that you have rung 9419 8377 to pledge your donation to the dogs uh, for the 3CR Radiothon. But uh, we're now coming back to Seoul who's got a very interesting article by Lindsay Connors from New South Wales, Selling Out Our School System to Profit Multinationals. Very interesting article indeed.
4: Thanks, Jean. So we have another great article from the Pearls and Irritations blog, this time by Lindsay Connors, who has entitled her piece Selling Out Our School System to Profit Multinationals. It was a shock but no real surprise to read that the multinational company Inspired Education, which owns Redham House School in Sydney's eastern suburbs, now plans to set up more fully for-profit schools in other areas. Who thought it would come to this? Where the inexorable march of privatisation of schooling in this country would reach a point where even schools in the private sector begin to sound the alarm. For Australia has surely made itself a magnet for such providers. New South Wales even offers a process to fast track such an enterprise, the state significant development. This appears to be a process which enables private schools and other kinds of developers to evade the pesky planning requirements which might be imposed at the local level, such as traffic and other community concerns. For the benefit of the readers who have never heard of this process, I consulted Google, and here is what I found. The state-significant development process provides an alternate approval pathway for projects or sites that are considered to be of state significance. At its core, the state-significant development process enables the assessment of significant projects at the state level rather than at the local council level. The ease with which private school places can be established in this country is reflected in the fact that the Australian school system is one of the most privatised in the world. Since 1977, the cumulative effect of government policies has resulted in an ongoing transfer of student enrolment share from public schools to a growing array of independent private schools, this hybrid system is now characterised by geographical and socio-economic divides, an inequitable distribution of resources, most significantly of teachers, and very ordinary academic outcomes overall. It does not take much inspiration to work out that a good profit can be made from a school charging an annual admission fees of $40,000. Presumably, it was clear to the owners of Redham College that relinquishing the $5 million a year in public funding in 2019 was a price worth paying to shed its previous not-for-profit status. Governments have established a policy climate in which non-government school communities, the private providers and the fee paying parents believe that they have the right to decide the size and the location of these schools in their own best interests, free from any regard or responsibility for the effects on the operation of other schools, not on other providers, nor on other people's children and their opportunities, nor on the distribution of the most vital resource, teachers, and not on the overall equity, quality, or efficiency of the school system overall. The Commonwealth's new schools policy, introduced by the Hawke government was the only serious attempt by the major funder of private schools to challenge the idea that the expansion of these schools should take account of the effects on existing schools. But this was applied only to the provision of Commonwealth funding and only for a decade. Its abolition was one of the first acts of the Howard government with its determination to allow market forces to shape the school system. The toxicity of debate over public funding of private schools has distracted attention from the nature of the regulatory framework for their establishment and ongoing operation, whether or not they attract public funding. Their shared responsibility for maintaining a sensible balance between supply and demand in relation to the overall school population must be built in at the point of registration. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, it has taken a submission from a private girls' school, Winona, to raise concerns to go beyond the legitimate question of traffic congestion in North Sydney for the 1,560 student campus planned by Inspired. Winona has asked the more fundamental question of whether there is enough demand to justify another high school in the area. That is the very question that the state government should be asking. What happens if the proposed inspired for-profit school in North Sydney does attain the status of the state significant development and does create a number of school places excess to the overall student demand in that area? It will take political courage to ask this question, for there is all too much evidence of the unacceptable answer to it. What will happen is more of the same the excess places will increase the freedom for better-off families to move their children to schools with a concentration of such students. These schools will have the level of enrolments and resources to provide students with access to the full range and depth of the curriculum. Children from families at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum will be relegated to smaller, less stable schools, unable to provide these benefits, and where teachers are battling against the odds. These schools are overrepresented in an underfunded public school sector. The public school system will continue to be left with a heavy lifting of the school system as a whole, including the responsibility of demographic planning to ensure there is a place for every child. If we believe that all children and young people have an equal entitlement to the highest quality of schooling this country can afford, then the primary obligation of the state is to a public school system, which is widely accessible, universally affordable, secular, and which conforms with the anti-discrimination legislation. This means that in every area of the state, the public school must be the first to be established and the last to be closed. Fredham School is reported as claiming that its waiting list to enter year seven is five times the number of students it can admit. Meanwhile, growing numbers of families with children are suffering financial hardship which affects their physical and mental well-being and even their attendance at school. The New South Wales and Federal Education Ministers have signed a pledge to overcoming the persistent underfunding of public schools by ensuring every New South Wales public school is on a path to reach 100% of their schooling resource standard entitlement. In light of the current and predicted economic circumstances for families, a further responsible decision would be to ensure that any additional schools or school places needed to meet population growth are provided in the public school system, where they can be accessed by all. Now, that would be a state-significant development. Yes, it would. Great article there, Lindsay Connors.
0: And I'd just like to take this opportunity to invite listeners who would like to pledge to the Dogs Radiothon effort to either call the station at 9419 or you can go to the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash. Donate, and there's several options on how to donate. We're not asking you to pay your pledge right now. What we'd like you to do is pledge now, pay later. Every donation over $2 is tax deductible, and if you can pledge before next Wednesday, the 14th, we'll be able to call your name out on air and say a big thank you to helping the dogs stay on air and helping independent media thrive in Australia, especially down here in Victoria where we need so much help with the dogs program. We need so much help to support our public school system. That is for the benefit of all and much to the gain of society at large. So please call 94198377, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate donate to 3cr on behalf of the dogs and if you do it before next Wednesday we can read your name out and say thank you. But if you do it after next Wednesday, we can still read your name out the following week. We'd like to personally thank everyone who makes the effort to donate because we know it's not easy in these difficult times of inflation and cost of living crisis. So any little donation helps. Of course, you do not have to pay straight away. It's pledge now, pay later. So all through June, we'll be taking pledges to the 3CR Radiothon effort. So, if you'd like to pledge on behalf of the dogs, please do so, and you will have not only our eternal thanks, but we'll also give you a big shout out on air and say thank you. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government.
3: On the product of a government funded
2: Well, you're still listening to the Dogs program, and down here in Victoria, and also up in New South Wales, there are a lot of regions which don't have a high school, where the children have to travel miles and miles in buses, which uh, which is very dangerous, of course, on the on our country roads, and they don't have a high school. And uh, Mr. Barilaro up there in New South Wales, who we all know was pretty good on the, on the, all the shenanigans that that politicians can get up to, um, promised to New South Wales a $71 million high school, but it's still not built and the town is in turmoil. Over to Dale with this story. Thanks,
0: Jean. Yes, I've got the article from The Guardian by Caitlin Cassidy and Tamsin Rose, a growing New South Wales town a $71 million unbuilt high school and the absolute epitome of short-term politics. So a new school was promised in the historic town of Bungendore, but three years later, the plans faced delays and legal challenges. So in 2021, when the New South Wales Deputy Premier and member for Monaro, John Barillaro, announced the site for a new $71 million high school in the middle of a regional town's heritage precinct, he conceded the location would come as a surprise to residents. And it did. It was announced a new high school would be built by January 2023 on the site of the only park in Bungendore, 30 minutes drive east of Canberra, requiring the demolition of its pool, community centre and council offices. The school would deal with the area's projected population growth and shorten the commute of students, some of whom faced more than two hours travel each day. Three years later, the school has not been built and the plans, which have been dismissed by one group of education department experts as unworkable, are the subject of legal action. Meanwhile, Year 7 and 8 students are learning in a makeshift $3 million demountable setup in the grounds of the primary school powered by a diesel generator. Stuart Gregory, a spokesperson for Save Bungendore Park, says it has received no adequate explanation from the government as to why multiple other sites were excluded. He said the whole ordeal is the absolute epitome of short-term politics. The temporary school should never have been opened. The new site is not going to meet demand. They are prioritising what they think is the quickest and easiest option and is going to get kicked down in court, he says. Both major parties have been promising the historic town of Bungendore High School for more than a decade. It's part of the fastest growing area in regional New South Wales with about 1,000 primary and secondary age students, according to 2021 Australian Bureau of Statistics data. Almost 30% of the town is under the age of 20. The site was first announced by then Education Minister Sarah Mitchell and Baralaro in August 2020, with the opening of the school set to occur shortly before the next state election in 2023. At the time, Barilaro conceded the location wasn't the cheapest site but was the right site in relation to getting a school built in the timeline that we've committed to. Carolyn Cole, spokesperson for Save, for the Save Bungandore Park movement, says members were all in disbelief at the government's actions. You could see standing there it was completely inappropriate, she says. The Quinbian Palerang Regional Council has not committed to a time frame for when the community infrastructure that will need to be demolished, including the pool, will be replaced. Internal Department of Education documents released under freedom of information laws show discussion to pick a private, vacant site close to the existing primary school was overturned months later in favour of the Bungendore Park site, despite meeting only nine of 21 detailed selection criteria. We're devastated to learn our local children will miss a Term 1 start in 2024 in a permanent high school say the Bungendore High School Action Group. The department told Guardian Australia that the other sites lacked the availability of essential infrastructure or were subject to environmental constraints like bushfires and floods. More than 300 formal objections were lodged, spanning lack of transparency to traffic concerns, loss of parkland and amenity and contamination issues. In addition to the concerns about the loss of community facilities, in April this year, the New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority said the rail corridor adjacent to the chosen site was significantly contaminated by lead and arsenic at levels high enough to warrant an investigation. Its report said the use of adjoining land for a school may increase the risk of harm caused by contaminants. The Department of Education says its own soil and dust testing indicates the site is suitable for school use. This week, Save Bugandore Park failed to reach agreement via mediation in the Land and Environment Court with the Education and Planning Departments to have the proposal quashed. It claims the development consent is invalid as the compulsorily acquired site is Crown land but the relevant minister for Crown land didn't give the required permission for it to change hands. The group is preparing expert witness reports for a court hearing in mid-July. Meanwhile the council is suing the Department of Education for compensation payable for the compulsory acquisition of the Crown land a matter also currently before the Land and Environment Court. A council spokesperson said the high school is important, but the proposed location didn't deliver the best outcome for the community. The Department of Education says it compensated the council for the replacement of facilities as determined by the New South Wales Valuer General and council was best placed to advise on rebuilding plans. The council valued the land at $14.6 million, while the Valuer General placed it at $10.8 million. 90% has been paid out while the dispute is argued. The rest has been withheld pending the court outcome scheduled for late June. The recently re-elected local Labor minister, Steve Wan, told voters before the state election he would consider pushing for an inquiry. This has created a division in a small community, which I think is probably the worst I've seen in the region, the Monaro MP says. My concern about this is not so much that we're going to be able to change where we're at at the moment. It's hard to turn back the clock, but that we make sure that future projects don't have this sort of disjoint that's occurred with the community. The current Deputy Premier and Education Minister carr says the community has waited long enough for its own school and she does not wish to see any further unnecessary delays. I understand the community's frustration. We will continue to work constructively to deliver the school as soon as possible. It's little comfort for the Bungandur High School Action Group, a group of parents and grandparents who achieved bipartisan commitment for a high school prior to the 2019 election. It says families are leaving the community due to continued uncertainty over planning timelines. With students in disparate schools spread across the region, the commute can be more than two hours a day. We're devastated to learn our local children will miss a term one start in 2024 in a permanent high school, a spokesperson says. Our community families have been log- lobbying for a high school for decades. They're getting fed up with the continuing uncertainty and a project that seems to have stalled. Until this school is built in its permanent location, our children and their teachers will continue to be impacted. Back to you, Jean.
2: Well, listeners, uh, we've been dealing with a lot of very interesting stories and shenanigans in the education sector but we always like to finish our program on a high note on the good news story and we've got this week a bobby dazzler out there in the western suburbs of melbourne there is a school which is doing something very very special Uh, although it has a lot of disadvantaged students and students who can't speak english It has produced in the last week a marvellous theatrical production and if you look at its uh, NAPLAN results, every single one of them are above average. I wonder what school it is.
4: Every week on The Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week, state school. School are great of the school. week, great state schools. State, state schools, schools school are great of the week, schools. school for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is. Bray Book Secondary College. Now, I have a statement to read um, from the principal of Bray Book Secondary College about a wonderful achievement that they have just achieved. And the principal writes, after a long journey, which has included a rigorous self-study over a two-year period, two audits by an external council of international schools, CIS reviewers, numerous class visits and interviews, involving college stakeholders, staff, parents, and students, and a deep dive into all facets of our school operations, we were informed on the 21st of November that we have been awarded our CIS accreditation. Congratulations, Braybrook! CIS-accredited schools are recognised for their high standards of teaching and learning, their policies, practices, and procedures, and an overall commitment to continuous school improvement. In the months ahead, we will analyze the 157-page CIS Evaluation Report, which highlights our strengths and includes recommendations for further school improvement. We will be sure to share this work with our college community in the new year, but for now, well done. Yes, definitely well done. What a great achievement, Braybrook. And I just have some facts and figures to throw at you from the ACARA website. Uh, Braybrook has 1,365 pupils, and its Ixio value is 960, which is below average. 7% of students have parents that earn an income in the top quartile. 16% of students have parents that earn an income in the second highest quartile. 27% of students have parents that earn an income in the second lowest quartile, and 50% of students have parents that earn an income in the lowest quartile. So really, this is a school that is represented, representative of the disadvantaged Australian community, with 85% of students speaking a language other than English and 1% of students being Indigenous. Some financial information. They get uh, recurrent grants from the Australian government for 4.97 million, from the Victorian government, 19.5 million. Fees and parental contributions make up 568,000. There is 53,000 coming from other private contributions. Per pupil, this is $18,412. And the capital grants over three years have been $962,000. But all the NAPLAN results are above average. And 66% of students went on to university and 18% to TAFE. Wow, what great leading school results. Congratulations for your Council of International Schools accreditation and congratulations on being our Great State School of the Week, Braybrook Secondary College.
2: Well, congratulations to Braybrook College.
4: And uh, that's it for today,
2: listeners. But we hope that you will be ringing 94198377 to pledge your donation so that we can let everybody know about it next week. Remember, it's 9419 8377. There should be somebody at the station now, but if they're not, then try it during business hours. But every uh, dollar over $2 is tax deductible, and it all helps. But uh, our time has gone. Thank you to Dale. Thank you to Sol. Thank you to Kim. Thank you to Oliver. And the uh, time has come to say bye for now.
5: I dreamed I saw joy last night Alive as you and me Says I but Joe you ten years dead I never died says he I never died says he In Salt Lake City, Joe says I am standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge says Joe, but I I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead, I never died, says he.